I didn't sense any sarcasm in those claps at all. Mark. I want to introduce you to somebody, guys. Uh, can we go ahead and throw that picture up there? I want to introduce you to somebody. Do you guys know who this is? No, that is not Ryan Holly from high school. Somebody guessed that. That is not Ryan Holly from high school. This is my new hero, okay? This is my new hero. His name is Leroy, how do you pronounce that last name? Stolfus, who ran a marathon, 26.2 miles, not only with that haircut, but full Irish garb, okay? Uh, what did I say? Irish? No, he, the, the Irish Amish. You're not familiar with that group, that clan? <laughs> they do a lot of stuff with potatoes, but other than that, this guy ran 26.2 miles dressed like that. Now that is incredible. My apologies to Chris Francisco, who was my marathon running idol. Now this guy uh, is. And tell Chris Francisco, you run an ultra marathon in that. Uh, if you do that, then uh, I'll switch back to your camp. I'd love to see that, as a matter of fact, actually. So you want to get me a Christmas gift, go pro that. Have you, actually, get the person in front of you to go pro you behind dressed like that would be a great gift to me. Wow, you guys are talkative tonight. What's going on? We got chirping all over the place. I don't think so. I don't think so. But anyways, this guy was interviewed, and listen to what he said about the race. He said he crossed the finish line. He said, I had no pain whatsoever. It was more mental anguish than in my legs. You have to train yourself not to think about it. It will just slow you down. I was once told by someone that it's 20% training, 80% mental, and I do believe that's true. That's how this guy basically with no training at all, was able to run 26.2 miles dressed like that. We can take that down because it is a tad distracting. But what he said, I think, is true. Uh, you've probably heard it before if you've played sports. It's mostly, at least 90% mental. But I think when you come to the Christian life, you might be able to make the argument that it is 100% a mental game before we get to our actions. And if you read our passage this week, you will understand that the thought process that goes into your Christian life is everything. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. While running a marathon might be an 80% mental game, why other athletes might say it's 90%, I think we can make the argument that we need to be 100% in control of our thoughts and our mind to be successful in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What a fantastic passage we have before us tonight. From where we were last time, Paul talking about the corporate body, what it's like to be in the body of Christ, the purpose for us coming to church, this passage now switched to tell us how we should be living our individual Christian lives outside of the church to make sure we are successful and living a life pleasing 
to God. It has everything to do with the way that you think. And what Paul does is just states it so straightforward and simple. What I want you to understand, though, is that the simplicity of this text should not make you think that it's easy. It is very simple to say you shouldn't think that way, you should think this way, and you will have success in the Christian life. That is simple and true, but it is by far the hardest thing that you will do to get control of your mind. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. So number one, on your outline, let's get it down this way. I need you to resolve with me to guard your mind. It is your most important weapon. It is the greatest tool that you can use to live a Christian life that will be pleasing to God. Without this, there cannot be the success of living a life pleasing to God that the Scriptures call us to. We must have this, guys. We must do this. Now, this, this text uh, is very important to me. Uh, if you were at the men's conference, I, uh, I challenged the guys there to get these things that are called uh, trump card texts. Anybody ever played spades before? Raise your hand played spades. What a great game. Wow, nobody else has played spades? Apparently in Michigan, when we get snowed in, that's all we can do. And you here in California can go surf and do whatever weird stuff you guys do on the beach um, out here. But we play spades and we have nothing else to do. Spades is a game where you put down the card and the highest card wins uh, in the suit. But if you have the, the ace of spades, that's a trump card that nothing else can beat. You will always win if you have that card. You are guaranteed to win that Hand. So I challenge guys to develop scriptures that are that trump card for them. And this text by far is one of my favorite trump cards. So the sermon that I'm preaching to you tonight is a sermon that I've preached to myself a thousand times. This text, by far more than any other text that I can think of right now, has helped me in the battle against temptation. Because it's not just my job to come out here and to preach to you these messages. I must preach them to myself and make sure that they change my life. So tonight, I might get a little bit animated, but it's only because I've done it to myself a million times, saying, you idiot, think this way. And yes, I do call myself an idiot when I talk to myself. You would probably do well to do that. That's probably good counseling advice. If you're doing something stupid, call yourself an idiot. Chances are you won't do that anymore. What was the famous advice? If I see an idiot do something... Well, never mind, I'll mess that up. But if you know what I'm talking about, what is that? how does that go? Somebody, somebody quote it. Somebody knows what I'm saying. If I see an idiot doing something, would an idiot do that and then I don't do that thing, okay? Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. Actually, don't, because uh, I don't know where the reference came from. So, Office, there it is, okay. See, I knew there was one out there. Keith, don't, don't try to act like all you do is play the piano all day and you don't watch any TV. <laughs> Oh, all I do is sing hymns all day at home. No, no, no. I know. I know what's going on. Mr. High and Mighty Choir Teacher, okay? It's good to call yourself an idiot, okay? If you're doing something stupid, call yourself an idiot. But this text then gets my mind thinking the right way in order to make sure that the change I'm making in my life is not just some mechanical change, but it's based on a radical work that God is doing in me to think a different way so I might bring him honor and glory. So tonight, I'm going to teach this passage to you as I've taught it to myself numerous times. Notice how Paul starts, the authority that he brings. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. So what I'm coming to you tonight is not just my opinion on how I think you should live your Christian life. This is coming from God himself through his apostle who is testifying to you that this is the way you have 
to live. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about this. This I say and testify in the Lord that you cannot walk like the Gentiles do. That means tonight, if you are in here confessing Jesus Christ, you cannot sit out there and say, I'm a Christian and yet live the way that the unsaved world does. You can't do that. You have no right to take the name of Christian if you are not going to change your conduct because God has said so in this text. This I say in testifying the Lord, you cannot walk like the Gentiles do and you know why those unsaved people walk that way? Because they have futile minds. Their thinking is messed up. What they do is they view life through a different lens than you and I are supposed to view life. They're very futile, the text says, in their minds. Their thinking is purposeless. It's meaningless. It has no goal, no weight, no value. It has no aim to to live for. You need to make sure that you have a mindset that is attached to something greater than who you are because as we're going to find out at the end of the text you are created in the image of God and that means you do have a goal that means you were created for a purpose that means you cannot think life is meaningless and what I do won't matter that's the way unbelievers think it doesn't matter what I do there's no accountability for me I'm going to live for my own life and if I'm happy then that means I'm okay in fact this word for futile is a very interesting word in the Greek version of the Old Testament when it was translated, there's a, a book that uses this word a lot. Uh, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably could guess it. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 2, just to understand kind of what feudal thinking will lead you to. Solomon's going to use the word feudal, or I think it's translated vanity here, meaningless, in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over again. And really, parts of the book of Ecclesiastes or what Solomon is doing when he looks at life and says, if I view life under the sun, if I view life apart from God, this is really how I'm going to end up living my life. Look at chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Ecclesiastes 2, 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows what, whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity or futile or it's meaningless. He looks at his life and he says, if there is no God, there is no afterlife, there's nothing to live for, then why am I wasting all my time and energy to build something up if I'm just going to pass it to somebody else and who knows what they're going to do with it? Who knows if they're going to squander it, develop it, say they built it, take credit for it. They can't, he can't do anything when he's gone if there is no God, what's the point? This is meaningless. So verse 20 says, I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil and my labor under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity. It's a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving in his heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all the days are full of sorrow and his work is vexing. Even the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. That is the end of the mindset of a non-Christian person if they really think about their life. I'm going to get to the point in time where I view life and say, if there isn't a God and I'm not living for something greater than me, what is the point? There's a futileness to their thinking. But notice the switch in verse 24. 
There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only, give it to, only to give it to the one who pleases God. We need to get to the point where we're recognizing and having the right mindset and viewing life in terms of a creator who's created us for a reason. We need to find out that reason and live it out to our fullest potential for the glory of God. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. We can't think the way that unbelievers do. We can't view this life as being meaningless, purposeless. There's no aim. There's no goal. We do have an aim. We do have a goal. But far from just saying it's just meaningless, Paul goes on to depict further and further in this text What is going on in their mindset? Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They're darkened. They don't understand why you and I do what we do. They don't get why we would sacrifice, why we go to church on the weekend, why we spend time reading our Bibles, why we pray. They don't understand that. They don't get what a relationship with God is because they're ignorant of all of these truths. You can read places in the New Testament that tell us it's you know, the God of this world who's blinded their eyes so they're not able to see. But ultimately, Romans 1, they've made the choice to worship the creature rather than the creator. And because they've made that choice, they are darkened in their own understanding, alienated from the life of God. So just a side note, they're alienated from the life of God. And if you think about the book of Ephesians so far, all that we've learned is life inside of God is full of spiritual blessings that we didn't deserve. I mean, we should have a greater zeal for evangelism this holiday season, knowing that every unsaved relative we meet is alienated from a life with God. If the Bible is true and everything written in it is true, from Genesis 1-1 that says God created everything for his honor and glory, if that is true, then the person alienated from God and separated from him is living an existence that is ultimately going to lead them to hell. I don't want that to happen, but... That means I can't adopt the same mindset because I have been saved. I have been redeemed. I have been given all these blessings. Now I must adopt a new mindset. I can't think the same way that I used to think. Notice verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I know you guys have seen it, but I hope you don't experience it. A callousness. You've lost feeling. You've developed such tough skin that... Hurting someone no longer affects you anymore. You've developed such hard-heartedness that you can't break down barriers to reach to someone else. If you get to that point, you are thinking like an unbeliever. And how dare you name the name of Christ who has given you a new heart and a new mind and shown you a new way to love. If you have a callousness in your heart, why are you claiming the name of Christ? And to the point, not only are you calloused towards other people and their feelings and what God thinks about you, but there is this sensuality. And that word is kind of scary in the original language. It speaks of someone who just sins in the open. There's just a blatantness to their sin. They don't really care. There's no shame to what they do. They'll just do it and they don't care what what anyone thinks about it. You cannot think this way if you are a Christian. Today, you've got to resolve to guard your mind. Because what the text says in verse 22 is that these ideas and desires belonged to your former manner of life. That's the way you used to live and you can't think that way now. Because if you do, what the text says in verse 22 is this. 
They will corrupt you through deceitful desires. That's the ultimate essence of what I'm trying to help you fight against today. A deceitful desire. Every desire that you have to do something sinful is a deceitful desire. I'm telling you that now so that when it's presented to you, you will not be attracted to the facade of the beauty it's offering you because it's a deceitful beauty. It's a deceitful desire that says, hey, if you do this, you will get this result and everything it promises, it won't deliver. I was reading a book uh, about the 1936 uh, Olympic Games, which were held in Germany. Uh, But did you know that uh, Hitler at the time who was rising to power originally didn't want to have the games at all? He said the games were of, you know, the creation of the Jews and the Freemasons. I don't want anything to do with those things. Uh, But what he got some of his team to tell him was, hey, if we as a country can get people to come over here and we can put on a nice show, then all the stuff we're doing behind the scenes, they won't pay any attention to. So what they did is they said, okay, we'll take the Olympic bid and we want to have the Olympic Games here. So over here in America, what we did is we said, okay, we're going to boycott the games. We're not going over there. We're not going to be a part of that. But what Hitler did is invited some people over to check it out. And ultimately, the Olympic Committee voted and they said, okay, we're going to go over there. And as I read the description of what happened, I I thought it was such a poignant example of these deceitful desires. So it was saying that that was a great victory for the Olympic Committee because they got the the athletes who have trained to go over and be able to, to go into the Olympics and have a chance to win a gold medal. That was a great victory there. But he said this. He said, most of all, it was a victory for Hitler who was rapidly learning just how ready the world was to be deceived. And what Hitler did was invite people over and put on a great facade. He built Olympic stadiums. He made everything look nice. He had everybody who came over welcome them, give them the, you know, the best of the best that they had over there. But the chilling description in that book was the same place that they built the Olympic stadium was the same place that they'd be slaughtering people within four or five years. See, there is deceit that goes on that says at first this is exactly what you think it is, but behind it there is only death and destruction. And every single deceitful desire that you think you're going to give into that is going to give you that pleasure will end up in destruction. Please just believe what the text says. Know that if you choose to go those routes, if you choose to be stuck in bitterness, it will end up killing you, not the person you're mad at. If you choose to be so angry and hate someone else, you're really just wasting your life because God has given you the ability to think differently. You see, we were angry and hostile to God, but God didn't use that as an excuse to just blast us. He sent his son for us. And if we've been the recipients of that grace, we shouldn't fall to these deceitful desires. we really got to watch the way that we think. So, if I could just get personal for a moment, this is going to happen in two ways, guarding the way that you think. Watching who you hang out with and watching what you're entertained by. Those two things are going to be the most influential things right now into the way that you think. The group of friends that you have, and this is not an advocacy to never hang out with anyone who is not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. Paul says to do that, we'd have to leave the world, 1 Corinthians 5. That's not what I'm saying. But you need to watch when you hang out with non-Christian people, who is the influencer and who is the influencee. Because if you begin to adopt their mindset and their way of thinking, and you begin to start to agree with them, then chances are you are being negatively influenced, and you can't have that. 
1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You can think you're going to change them, but if they're changing you, you've got to watch that. I think of the way it's put in Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, you notice the level of intimacy with the group becomes greater and greater. He doesn't walk. You're walking with someone, you're having a casual conversation, but they say something that strikes you and you stop. You begin to engage them more intimately as you're you're just talking with one another standing there. And then when you get in real agreement, you begin to sit down and really talk out these ideas. The familiarity with these people is causing great, great despair onto the person. What is the contrast of that? But that person should meditate on God's law day and night. Let that renew the mind. And that's where the text is going to take us back in Ephesians. It can't be that those things are being the influencers in your life. You must be the influencers on them. I mean, that's our job in the world. It's not that we shy away from them, but we go out knowing that we think a different way and we are backed by the power of God when we do that. And then you can have a positive influence for the glory of God. But secondly, what you're entertained by, okay? We live in a culture where you can, if you have Netflix, right? We have Netflix. We know Keith has Netflix now and watches The Office all day long. <laughs> Kidding. I don't know that he has that that way. But you can sit there, and what's, the, what's the, the new, I'm sure it's probably even in the dictionary now, it's called binge watching, right? You could just have it on all day, and that is constantly talking to you. And whether you are watching it or subconsciously watching it, you realize this is having a major influence on me. Now again, I have Netflix. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it. I'm saying there are fun shows, there are ways to be entertained, but if that is constantly influencing you towards bad things, why do you think you're going to be able to switch your mind when a temptation comes? When you're just, when it's not battle time and you're just feeding yourself constantly bad things, why do you think you're going to make the switch when a battle comes? It's, it's just foolishness. Prepare your mind and watch what you're entertained by. That's a, that's a quote, I mean, that's to you and I. We both need to make sure. Especially for us who have kids, right? What are we letting them be entertained by? It becomes our job to be able to make sure that they're not entertained by things that would dishonor God. Back to Ephesians 4. Notice that is the way that the unbeliever has to think. That's the way they are, they are trapped. They are in bondage, Romans 6, to that way of thinking. And they cannot do otherwise. I was reminded of that as I read this book on uh, the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Uh, in 1919, the Black Sox scandal, if you don't know about it, uh, eight players were cast out of baseball uh, because they cheated. They threw, and bet on, they threw a game and bet on the World Series in 1919. And one of them was Shoeless Joe Jackson, if you know the name. But as I'm reading the account, and it doesn't excuse the player's actions because it's not right, but you understand why they would even agree to do something as foolish as bet on baseball when it's so clear you can't do that. Uh, what was going on back then was the, each team had the reserve clause. If you don't know what the reserve clause is, it basically meant that each team owned the player. And the player could do nothing like go try to get to another team, get a better deal from somewhere. They were locked in with that team until the team said, okay, I'm done with you. It's a reserve clause. So this team, the, the White Sox, uh, with Charles Comiskey, was one of the best teams, but he was paying his players peanuts. They couldn't go anywhere because they were only uh, owned by that club. Okay? That's what people are like when they are sinners, when they're unsaved. They are only owned by that club. There's nothing they can do to get out of that. So what changed that whole thing was in 1975, a man by the name of Kurt Flood 
said, I, I'm not going to do this. You can't, just, you can't just own me. I need to have some, some say in this. I need to be able to choose. I need to have some say in, in what goes on. And he changed the game, entered in free agency and all those different kind of things. It's kind of like the switch that goes on when you become a Christian. Now you have say and a choice in the things that you think about. Sin doesn't have the reserve clause on your mind anymore. You are not held by that team. You now have the ability to go out and say, I can, I can choose a new way. I don't have to now think this way. There is a new way laid out for me, and that's what Paul does in verses 22 through 24. Actually, look at verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is such a helpful way for Paul to get us to think. And verse 20 is really the, the, the verse that hits me the most. The temptation that is faced to me, I will quote verses 17 to 19 and say, that temptation, if I'm really thinking about it, is way an unbeliever would think. I view the situation as only an unbeliever, but I got to get to verse 20 where I say, that is not how I learned Christ. Christ did not teach me that I come to fulfill myself, but to deny myself. You could just write down 2 Corinthians 5, 14, and 15, and that would be a great verse for you to change your thought process. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Therefore, we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he rose again that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is the way you learned Jesus Christ when you became a Christian. You did not learn Christ in a way that said, he's going to forgive all your sins, and then you just get to go do what you want. You learn that you now give your life away for Jesus Christ so that he gets the honor and glory when you live. See, this is the way we need to prepare our minds to think. So let's get it down number two this way. Prepare your mind to be renewed. The renewing of the mind is what we need to make sure that we think this new way. And I put it that way, prepare your mind to be renewed because of the way that it's put in the text. If you look at verse 23, okay, it says it very plainly right there. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, the author or the translators of the ESV have made a choice there. It's not necessarily a heretical choice, but they made it sound like the renewing is up to you. And I think that idea is present in the scriptures, like Romans chapter 12. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That idea is present in scriptures, but I don't think it's what's present here. I think you could translate it better this way. To be renewed by the Spirit in your mind, meaning the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to do it. I get that because all we've read from chapter 3 and where we'll go in chapter 5 is the Spirit the one who's going to illuminate your mind. He's the one who's going to cause you to, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, what is it, verse 18, uh, be filled with the Spirit. It's the Spirit who's going to do that. But the great thing is, whichever person's right, myself or the translators here, I think the answer is the same. You see, if you go with the route that you have to do it, it's just going to be putting your mind in the scriptures. And if I go with the route that it's going to be me passively getting it done to me by the Holy Spirit, I still have to do it by going to the scriptures. So whichever way you take it, it's going to be by going to the scriptures. It's much like, okay, you want the oven to cook the Thanksgiving turkey, right? I'm not going to do any, I'm not going to cook it. 
but I'm going to prepare it to be cooked so that when it's in there, it's going to taste really good. I'm going to put the right spices on it. I'm going to lay some bacon over it, right? You guys do that at Thanksgiving? I hope so. If not, you're not American, okay? That's not the way you do Thanksgiving, right? You've got to put bacon over it, and it makes it taste really good, and then you can chop it up and dice it and put it in the salad afterwards. It's just so practical. You, call, you might think I'm Julia Childs, but I'm not. I'm just here, here to help. She's the cooking lady, right? Right? No? Yes? Okay. Well, can you give me some acknowledgement that you guys know what I'm talking about? Say thumbs right there. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to prepare the turkey as it goes in to get cooked there. It doesn't mean our, our work's done. We're just going to shove it in there. But to get it ready, we're going to prepare it, and then we'll put it in there and let the oven do the work. Same thing with our mind. If we want the Spirit to renew our mind, we've got to do the work to prepare it, getting into the Scriptures, praying, doing accountability. These are the things we're doing to prepare our minds. Because too often we have what happens in verse 22 and 24. We say, put off and then put on. But if we don't do the renewing of the mind by the Holy Spirit, all we're doing is just changing one action for another and not really changing the inside of us. We need to prepare our mind to be renewed, and that's only going to happen inside the Scriptures. I love the way he puts it. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed by the spirit in your minds. And you put off the old self to put on the new self. Notice this, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And this is what guides us. You are created for a purpose. You don't get to define the reason you were made. God has done that for you. And he's done it for you in such a way that he's detailed it in the scriptures. And if you don't do your job of imaging God, showing his likeness to the world, then you are going against your created purpose. And when you do that, bad things happen. Jeremiah, I think we got some, some pictures up there. I, I, okay, it's a disturbing picture, okay? It's a urinal, okay? That is a urinal. I found a list of the 25 most interesting, if you can use that word, urinals. Uh, here's one of them. Very disturbing picture. Go to the next one. This is at Mark Vosper's house. This urinal, so weird. This shark is right there. You, must, you guys must really like Shark Week. I don't know why you did this. But they just, they create these urinals right here. Go to the final one. Does this make anybody mad? As a music teacher, are you upset by seeing this? No, you love it? Okay. Well, that, that destroys my illustration. I hope you hate it. If you look at this, that, is that a tuba? Tuba? Yeah, it's a tuba, okay? A tuba was created for what? to make music, right? Some would say beautiful music. Others would argue against that, apparently. But some would say it's created to make music. This is being disused against its created purpose. And if you look at that, that's pretty disturbing. What do you think it's like? Are you not disturbed by that, or do you think that's cool? You want that done in your house? No? Yes, you want it done in your house? Le of course, Les would. Of course he would, okay? Let's take that picture down because it's defeating my purpose. I wanted you to be disturbed by that. Less is intrigued by that. <laughs> Counseling that we will go through later on, you and I. When you go against your created purpose, it's going to bring destruction. It's going to bring disturbing things. Men and women were created in the likeness of God. We are designed to do something. When people look at us, they should see something in us that matches God's attributes, right? We have it in here, righteousness and holiness that should be increasing in your life. And if you're not doing that, you're going against your intended purpose. And I know why you're doing that, because you're thinking like the world thinks, which the world says you are the number one thing, but being created in the image of God should humble us to say, no, it's God who's the number one thing, and living according to his standard and purposes. That's what we need to do. 
It is foolishness for us as image bearers to try to go to the one whom we are imaging and and tell him how we're going to live our lives, to tell him how we're going to think about things, to tell him how we're going to treat other people. You can't do that. In fact, that's James chapter 3, verse 9, right? With our mouths we bless God and honor him, but with it we curse one another who are created in the image of God. How dare you? How dare you look at another person created in the image of God and curse them? You don't have the right to do that. You are an image bearer. You are not the true image yourself. You are the image bearer. And it is a height of arrogance to be able to take that on and say, I'm going to determine my fate. I actually I read a very interesting account and made me think about this. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s and you liked basketball, chances are you liked Michael Jordan. And uh, he's one of my favorite players. And uh, he has the jump man symbol, right? That's his image. When people see the jump man, they, they think of Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan is the true image. The jump man, which is on posters and shirts and shoes, it's the image that you see other places. Well, one game, uh, he was playing against Jim Jackson of the New Jersey Nets. And Jim Jackson was talking trash to Michael Jordan. Whole game, talking trash to Michael Jordan. So finally, Michael Jordan walked up to him and says, why are you talking trash to me when you're wearing my shoes? You see, Jim Jackson had the image of Michael Jordan. He's wearing Air Jordan shoes. If you think about it, he was the image bearer towards the true image. And if you are going to go to the point where the person who is the epitome, the image of that, to tell him and to talk trash to him, you don't understand the roles properly. It's a lot like that with us and God. If we're going to say, God, I'm going to choose to do life my way. I'm going to choose to think about the things the way I want to think about. I'm going to be this way towards this person. I'm going to hold this grudge towards that person. I'm going to do it my way. It's, it's much like Jim Jackson talking trash to Michael Jordan when he's wearing his image on his own body. We do the same thing when we dishonor God. But we have the chance when we renew our minds in the scriptures to say, wait a second, I was created for a purpose. I was created for a reason. I'm created to glorify God. Here's the great thing, that we don't have to do that perfectly. You realize the reason that you are a Christian is because you already broke the image of God. Jesus Christ came down to live life perfectly, and he is, Colossians 1, the image of God. He did it perfectly, so he stands in your place, and that's the reason you're saved. But now, if you turn with me to Colossians, this is what we see. Colossians chapter 3, and we studied this a couple years ago. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 9 and 10. Colossians 3, verse 9 and 10. says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, similar to our practice, with its practices, our passage, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And Colossians 1 tells us that Christ is the one who created everything. So we are being renewed with our minds, to look more and more like the one who saved us. That's the essence of why we're renewing our mind. But we've got to prepare our minds to do that by going to the scriptures. So my challenge to you is this. Uh, we won't have any homework due next week. We're just coming in and we're going to have a good time at the party. Uh, and then we'll be off for three weeks, I think, after that. My challenge would be this. If you could, in your group or with your spouse or however you want to do this, maybe individually, you pick ten verses, okay? Pick ten verses of scripture that you love, Maybe you've memorized it, maybe you haven't, maybe you want to memorize it, maybe you want to study deeper. At least 10 verses. And once a day, at least, between tomorrow and when you come back, read that passage over and over again. 
You read it once a day, you can read it more than once a day, but my thought is the more you focus on that passage, the more it will have a deeper impact on your life. And when you read other passages of Scripture or you come to sermons, you will begin to watch the way that that passage has prepared your mind to receive the things of God in a better way. Just try it. It's, it's not that it's pretty low bar. You don't have to write anything on it. You just got to pick the passage, read it over and over again, and see what happens. See if that doesn't begin to prepare your mind. And my hope and prayer is that once you see that take effect, that you will want to do that more and more and pick new passage in this passage, and then you're going to have a whole litany of passages that you just throw out to prepare your mind for the Spirit to renew it. That's what we need. Do you realize that when we've been given this responsibility to bear the image of God, that people's knowledge of God who don't know God are really coming from you? How many of you have unsaved family members? You're going to go to see them this holidays, Right? the way that you interact with them is really how they're going to develop their concept of God. You say you're a Christian, you say you know God, you say you read the Bible, so you're short with one another, you're angry with the kids, you're frustrated all the time. You're, they're basing their concepts of God on the way that you act. But if you show patience, if you show kindness, you stand up for righteousness, you uphold the truth, you do all of those things, you will stand apart in such a way that will give God honor and glory. That's a great thing to do this holiday towards unsafe family members. Let me talk to you people with kids, though. Your kids are developing their theology of God based on the way you act, based on the way you discipline them, based on the way you are entertained, based on the way you bring them to church, based on the way you read your Bible. They are developing their view of God based on that. You want to image the proper image so that, they, that God can use that in order to bring them to Christ. This is such a high responsibility, but it reaps the greatest rewards when we do it God's way. So let's resolve today to not think like we used to think when we were unsaved, but to prepare our minds to be renewed by the Spirit so that we look more and more like Jesus Christ every single day. Your, your marriage will benefit from, from it, your kids will benefit from it, from it, the church will benefit from it, and ultimately God will get glory because of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this look at your word. Thank you for the truths here. I pray that we would all take seriously the thought to take every, every thought captive, as Paul says to the Corinthians. And what the truth of Philippians 4 tells us that whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, that we would think on those things to renew our minds. So God, give us the patience to do that. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.